I, I just want to underscore what we've seen here. Um, it is our desire that God would raise up people from this church to go. And uh, that we hold everybody, everything in this church with an open hand. Uh, that is not a cliche. That is not just the right thing to say. Uh, we mean that. I mean, staff members, everybody is held with an open hand. And I'll say this even further, which might surprise some of you. Not every gift in this church is meant to be used in this local church. The gifts that are here, God may raise you up to go elsewhere, and you need to go. And it's my prayer that we will continue to become more and more kingdom-minded. You don't lose anything by giving. Uh, it is the cause of Christ, and none of us should be married to a location, but we follow the Lord Jesus, however long he wants us to be at the location. But, uh, for example, I, you know, you've heard me say this, I'm not announcing that I'm going anywhere but I have to tell you, you know, uh, even Karen and myself, I mean, we're here forever how long the Lord wants us to be here, but if tomorrow there's a new assignment from him, we're, we're going to go. And I hope that that's your heart too, not to make assumptions about God or assumptions about where you are. We're followers of the Lord, and uh, he assigns us to where he wants us to be and his sovereign purposes for however long he wants us to be there. So let's not hold on to people I have discovered in my years of ministry that when you hold on to people, bad things happen. Let's not hold on to people. Let's hold on to the Lord and give people back to him. And because what he gives to us, he'll pass on elsewhere and he'll give us more as we trust him and follow him. So let's continue to pray for Brian. I'm excited about this for him. I've had the privilege just watching this young man's development all along. And I mean, it's been a, a, a joy to behold uh, he has been faithful, but let's continue to pray for him that God will use him in a great way. The other thing I want to say, too, is that, you know, it's this time of the year that we're also recruiting for Learning Center, and uh, I make the same basic speech every year. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Um, I don't know, and I, and I say this, I don't know of a more strategic ministry in our church than to pour into the hearts and lives of the next generation. Um, you said, if, if you've been around, you've heard me say this. I stand here today in large part because of Mrs. Edgar when I was five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. My wife, her testimony, Mrs. Green there, uh, she was, Karen was 10 years old, and this, uh, this Sunday school teacher poured into her heart and life. And uh, we, we, need, we need about 40 more teachers. And so there's a, there's a sign-up out here in the marketplace it would be a great thing for you to just carve out some time to uh, men and women to help write a signature of the souls of the next generation. Amen? Yeah, that was a little weak. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I won't pursue that. Um, if you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you so very much for what we have witnessed and seen already today. Thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing in our hearts and lives. And Lord, the people who have come through Fellowship Bible Church through the years, who are laboring elsewhere, who blessed us while they were here, and you used us by your grace and mercy to be a source of hope and help and encouragement to them. 
And God, I pray that this spirit of coming and going in a, in, in a kingdom strategic way will continue to grip our hearts and our lives. Now, Father, we pray that you'll open your word to us and speak to us. You know the message that you've placed on my heart. And I pray especially for those of us here who, who have been reminded of our sinful failure, um, who are struggling with guilt and shame, um, who may sense that uh, uh, they're not being used the way in which they would like to because of some choices and decisions that they've made. I pray, God, that you will use this passage of your word to speak to our hearts and to pull us out of that, that dark, deep place. For that person who doesn't know you as Savior and Lord today, I pray that they will come to know Jesus and that the kindness of the Savior would draw them to repentance. Thank you for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you, if you've been around here for a while, know that I usually preach series of messages. I am going to do that probably not next week, but following that we'll start a series and then there'll be some other series that we will announce later on. But um, while I was away, I knew that this Sunday would be more of a standalone thing and I wrestled in prayer about what to share with the body here and I just could not uh, get away from this, this story, this text, this incredible passage in John chapter 21. So I wanna, the title of the message is, is Forgiven and Restored. It's about Peter being put back together. Some years ago, I was, uh, several years ago, I was speaking at an event, and uh, when I was there during the break after I spoke, I spotted a guy I hadn't seen in years. And uh, in fact, I hadn't seen him since right after we both graduated from college, and so you know there's a lot of water under the bridge there. And so it was so good to see him because I remember we used to pray together and, and uh, dream about how God would use us, what would take place in our lives. And so we had some coffee together, and as we were sitting down there just getting caught up, I said, well, yeah, what, what's been going on these years, man? Tell me about it. Bring me up to speed. And as soon as I asked that question, you could literally just feel the heaviness come over him. A um, little darkness. And he just said, as he lowered his head, he said, Crawford, you know, uh, I, I pastored for a number of years, and things were going great with the church, and um, lives were being changed, and things were happening. It was just absolutely wonderful. But I made a bad choice. I made a bad decision. Uh, he got involved in immorality, adultery. And this had been years, and so he... He told me, he said, uh, um, of course, I, I, I had to step down and lost the ministry. And I, I said, well, what, what happened? He said, well, you know, um, I was forgiven and, and restored. And my marriage was put back together and all of that. But, um, you know, I've left the ministry. I haven't preached for years. I, I, I work in a secular job, which is no problem with that. But, but I could just feel the guilt and shame, all these years, all these years, and there's a lid on him. A couple of weeks ago while I was gone on vacation here, I had uh, breakfast with a friend of mine, a young friend, uh, he's older now, he's a, a leader uh, in this organization, and um, 
as we met together, I knew a little bit of the backstory of what he was wrestling with. In fact, that's why I wanted to get together with him for breakfast. Uh, regrettably and unfortunately, he let this, this, this lethal combination of pride and anger get the best of him. And he made some choices and decisions out of anger and pride that were wrong and absolutely hurt and crushed some people and caused some big problems. And he was broken over it, completely broken over it. He had gone through the process, totally repented over it, and really broken over what had taken place. But once again, as I was sitting there, I, I tried to encourage him, but I could just see the haze of guilt and shame cascade down around him. I got to tell you, here at the church, here at the church, there are people who no longer come here for various legitimate reasons. I'm not talking about that. You know, they feel called to go elsewhere. They don't like the style of this or whatever. That's not a negative thing or whatever. You know, I'm not talking about those legitimate reasons, but I've been around long enough. There's some people who no longer come here, not because of those legitimate reasons. There's some who no longer come or, or they come, but they're no longer involved because of poor choices they've made and the guilt and the shame. They just can't face people anymore. They just can't be involved anymore. And this heaviness is, is over them. And what ends up happening, and we, you know, in various ways, we've all been there. Everybody's messed up. What, what's, what, what ends up happening, what ends up happening is, is that you believe the lie. You believe the lie, well, no one will ever trust me again. Or you believe the lie, you believe the lie, well, God will never use me again. And that's where so many of us live. And the enemy uses the guilt of our failures to paralyze us and keep us back from a glorious future. So here you have this friend of mine with great vision, wonderful gifts, who has believed the lie that God can't use them anymore to open the word and to preach, even though it's been years. Or this young leader, great leader, great ability, but because he blew it, he submitted to, to, to all kinds of counsel and leadership. I don't know if I can do this again. Or people who used to be involved here at the church. I can't do that again. Who said so? Well, this is exactly where Peter is when we come to John 21. This is exactly where he says. I just described Peter. This is exactly where he's at. Peter had betrayed the Lord. It don't get any worse than that. Peter had betrayed Jesus. There's a resurrection that's taken, that has already taken place, and uh, Peter saw the empty tomb. And, but they're in this no man's land right now. They're struggling all the drama of what's taken place prior to the cross and then the resurrection, and What's going on? And in the context of the narrative here, you can just feel that Peter's struggling, man. He is struggling with his guilt and shame. That's what this is all about. 
So much so you can almost feel, and I know that I'm playing a little bit with the narrative here, but it is implied so much so that, that, that Peter, Peter just sort of like resorts back to doing what he did before he became a follower. Where do you get that from? Well, he's hanging out with a few of the disciples and, uh, you know, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and, you know, they're around the water and this kind of thing. And Peter is just saying, you know, I, I'm uncertain about a lot of stuff. All this stuff that I said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, you know, and all this stuff, I'll never, I'll never, never deny you. I said all that stuff. I don't know about all this stuff. Man, I'm going fishing. He knew that. So he resorted back to what he did. And by the way, by the way, I've got to tell you, it's been my experience. It's been my experience. The guilt and shame will pull us back to doing what we used to do. Another friend of mine told me this incredible story, and I thank God for this buddy of mine. Boy, what a great thing. Uh, he had a friend that was a well-known pastor that had another moral failure and uh, didn't end well as those things never do and he uh, was dismissed from his church and this guy just hit the skids um, he, he was restored and forgiven but he never embraced that forgiveness himself so what does he do he gets off the grid he goes underground nobody knew where he was Nobody. And so this buddy of mine that was close to him said, the Lord just wouldn't let me go without pursuing him. He said, Crawford, you know where I found him? I won't mention the name of the city, but it's in an adjoining town to the city where he was. He said, I found him in this little dinky bar. Just sitting there knocking a few back. And uh, it's a marvelous story because this buddy of mine said, I just, just said to him, is, is this what you were born for? You think God's given up on you? And he was relentless. And, you know, there's a great story because the guy is restored now, serving the Lord, preaching the word, all of that. But what did he do? I mean, he just, I failed. Let me scurry on back over here. Peter said, I failed. I don't know what to do. This following Jesus, three years of my life, this kind of thing didn't work out. You see, I denied him. I messed up. Doesn't get any worse than what I did. I'm going fishing. Peter's path to restoration, though, however, is about ready to take place. <laughs> And the way Peter gets back on this path of restoration, it centers on these three, these three things. It centers around a charcoal fire, a conversation with Jesus, and a calling renewed or restored. First, there's a charcoal fire. Uh, what's, what's, what's this thing about charcoal here? Well, the context here is that Peter, okay, they're out there fishing, right? You know the story. They're out there fishing. They don't catch anything. Zip all. I mean, this is, you know, for a layman like me to get skunk fishing, that's normative. I mean, that's kind of like what happens to me. But for, I mean, they were professional fishermen. All night long, nada, nothing, not even a bite. Well, they were using nets, but nothing. So... 
Early in the morning, they see this figure on the shore. They don't know who it is. And this dude says, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. <laughs> Imagine Peter, James, and John saying, seriously? We, all right, humor him. I mean, it can't be any worse than what we did. So they throw on the other side of the boat and hoot your mama. I mean, the thing is just loaded down with all these fish. You get the mother load. Call a school and the, you know, college and university of fish. They just pull them all up. It's, it's amazing. So when they look closely, discover it's Jesus. What does Peter do? They, Peter had been fishing in like probably his underwear. He puts on his outer garment, and Peter dives into the water. Now, I got to tell you, I disagree with some who interpret this, that he dove into the water uh, trying to get away from Jesus. I don't know how they get that interpretation. I think he dove in the water to get to Jesus. I don't know, but maybe you want to say one more time, I'm sorry. Maybe you wanted to do it just one more time. Say, I'm sorry. And this grabs me. He so he swims to the shore. And when they get there, <laughs> this is charcoal fire. Now, this entire scene is very painful in a sense, to Peter. The charcoal is a painful reminder. Have you ever gone by a place where you kind of like made a bad choice? And you see that place, you go, oh, oh, I don't want to be around here. This is what happens to Peter, this charcoal fire. You say, well, why is that such a big deal? Well, you know, John chapter 18, verses uh, 18 and 25, that's where Peter denied the Lord around a charcoal fire. I can imagine, maybe Peter's thinking, why, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Let, let, me, let me say something to you. I want you, to, I want you to hear me on this. Please hear me on this. Listen to me. Listen to me. This is a story of God's amazing grace and mercy, okay? This whole passage, this is where it's going. But what you have to understand, this is not a story of cheap grace or inadequate mercy. Jesus brings Peter to this charcoal fire for him to one more time fully acknowledge what he has done. Hear me on this. There cannot be authentic restoration unless there is authentic repentance. And part of the problem with too many of us is, is that we've got this convoluted view of grace and mercy. We think we, think we can just kind of do whatever we want to do, not fully acknowledge it, not fully embrace the consequences of it, not fully say that this is wrong, but re- you ought to accept me. We all fail. But what Jesus does here says, yeah, that's true. I want to put you back together. But Peter, 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 one more time.
You need to smell the charcoal. He doesn't do it to hurt him, but to remind him, as David said, the sacrifices of God are broken in a contrite heart. There's a difference between guilt and contrition. No, that's taken away, but you need to remember the pain that your sin caused, because that's redemptive. Charcoal fire. Charcoal fire. But this is also a picture of grace and mercy. It is amazing. The very place of our sin becomes a channel of grace and mercy. And I think Jesus said, come here, come here, come here, come here. My grace is greater than your sin. Charcoal fire. No, that, 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 what you did, what you did, what you did after the garden, what you did when I was, what you did when I was being crucified, you denied me. But this charcoal fire is not about denial, hallelujah. This charcoal fire is about deliverance. I can take the place of your pain. I can take the place of your, your, your failure and your sin and your bad choices, no matter how hellish and wrong and devastating it was, and I can redeem it and turn it around. That can become an altar of freedom. And that's exactly what Jesus does by bringing him here. Mm. Mm. And notice what he does, and I don't want to play too much with the, with the narrative here, but <laughs> standing by the charcoal fire, Peter just jumped in the water. He was soaking wet. So to stand by the fire with Jesus, and notice the text says that there were fish on the fire. <laughs> Jesus gave Peter the opportunity to dry off to get warm and to eat. When you sin, you don't run from the one who can put you back together, you run to him. If you've repented of your sin, you've confessed it to the Lord, why do you keep beating yourself up? Why do you keep pulverizing yourself? Why do you keep putting lids on you that God didn't put there? He invites you to come to the fire to dry off, warm up, and fellowship with him. Isn't that what 1 John 1, 9 says? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you gone to your charcoal fire? That's where it begins. So first, there's a charcoal fire. Secondly, there's a conversation with Jesus. Now, you need to know that the, what is missed sometimes when we preach this passage is that you just think that it's, a, it, that it's just Peter and Jesus there. Well, that's not so. The text implies very strongly, in fact, it says it, that the other disciples were there too. So Jesus, what Jesus is doing is restoring Peter publicly. 
And I would say this to you, although the text doesn't say it, but I think the implication of the passage is this. Now, hear me on this. This is for some of the self-righteous people that we have in this building listening to me right now. Okay? This is for you. This is for me. I have tendencies in that area sometimes myself. This is for those of us who are a little, 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 little down our nose, a little self-righteous. I think Jesus did this in front of them, talked to Peter in front of them, went through this narrative in front of them to give them a message. I am restoring Peter, and you better not ever bring this up again. Don't you rub his face in it. I'm putting him back together. You have no right to judge him. I've cleansed him, and I've put him back in the game. Don't look down your nose on him. Don't hold against him what I have forgiven. And I actually think that that's the reason why he has this conversation in their hearing. Oh, I wish to God the church folk would get this. Always concerned about somebody else's business rather than your own. Some of us just need to keep our mouths shut. Now, I have nothing specific that I'm alluding to. I just know human nature. Now, I'm serious. I just know human nature. Some of us run our mouths too much, and we act like we have never screwed up. So, there's this conversation with Jesus, which <laughs> Peter is mercifully and graciously restored. Now, I want to read this, verses 15 through 17. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Grieved. That, that, that's to be taken, not, not grieved in the sense of being angry, but grieved in the sense of hurt. Man, how many times I got to say this to you? I know I messed up. Said to him a third time, Simon, Peter, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. Why, why did Jesus ask Peter three times, do you love me? I think the text doesn't say this, but I'd bet my house and everything else on it. I think he asked him three times, do you love me? Because Peter had denied the Lord three times. He had denied him three times. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Now, again, 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 again. <laughs> this gave Peter three opportunities to affirm his love for Jesus. Now, hear me on this. This, this is not, Jesus, Jesus didn't need the information from Peter. Peter needed the information from himself. Peter, this is, this is gracious. What Jesus did was he wanted Peter to express the reality that's in his heart. 
And he wanted Peter to know that his love for him was greater than his denial of him. And he was underscoring, Peter, 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 what's important is not your perfection, but your love. And he wanted Peter to hear it. Say it again, son. Say it again, son. Say it one more time. It's like when your own child, they don't think you love them. Say, I love you. Now you say that back to me. You love me. Say it again. You love me. Say it one more time. I think that's what Jesus was doing. He was repairing Peter's soul. You're not defined by the mistake you made. You've come clean. Foundation is love. Now, he asked them the question in verse 15, do you love me more than these? That's kind of curious, isn't it? What do you mean by that? I, I believe what Jesus was doing was reminding Peter of his prideful statement. He said, where do you get that from? The more than these are, 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 are the disciples who are there. There's another indication. He was having the conversation. The disciples were right there. They were right there. This wasn't Jesus off to the side saying, I'll be back over here, and I want to talk to Peter and put him back together. No, he was having this conversation while they were looking on. Dual meaning, he wanted them, wanted to understand, hey, 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 get off your high horse. I'm putting them back together. Don't you repeat this thing. And the other piece is, I think when he said more than these, he was reminding Peter, now, son, you made an arrogant statement, but I need you to, I need you, I need you, I need you to understand something about pride, where it will take you. You made that arrogant statement back over in Matthew chapter 26, verses 33 and 35, You said, I will never deny you. I told you back then, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Don't assume because I bless you and use you that somehow or another you're better than these. Do you love me more than they do? And this is a good word for those of us who, who, um, and let's face it, uh, you know, the more we walk with the Lord uh, and we don't do certain things that we used to do and we don't struggle in the same area that we used to struggle in, this hellacious Pharisee spiritual pride thing will get us. I hear Christians talking about the evil out there in the world and how can these people make these decisions and this kind of thing. How can they act like that? And the lack of humility in our voices is appalling. We become terribly smug and obnoxious. This is a good reminder. This is what Jesus was saying to Peter. (laughs) Now, careful, buddy. You see, what I've discovered in my life is that pride is always the call to sinful humiliation. If, If we're full of pride... No matter what it is, it's not whether or not we're going to be humiliated. It's just a matter of when. Pride comes before fall. 
And so when he said, Peter, you love me more than these? Do you really? This is, this is settled down a little bit here, buddy. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Hey, 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 watch it, man. Don't say what you wouldn't do. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Several weeks ago, a couple months ago, I did, talked about David's fall with Bathsheba there. Sweet David, yeah, the one who wrote the anthology of worship for the most part, the Psalms. Yeah, sweet David. Uh-huh. The one that felt the anointing of God on him. Sweet David walked, ran 16 years from Saul, hiding out in caves. God delivered him. Sweet David, yeah, he committed murder, adultery, and he had no apparent remorse. So don't say what you wouldn't do. You love me more than these? Don't say that, buddy. The other piece here is that as he walks through all of this with him, he's underscoring the fact that your love is everything. But I want you to notice that when he says your love is everything, each time he raises the question, he gives Peter a commission. Did you know that, notice that in the passage? He says, do you love me, Peter? Verse 15, yeah, I love you. Well, feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Well, t- tend my sheep in verse 16. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, in verse 17. Well, feed my sheep. What is he saying? What is he saying to Peter? He's saying to Peter what he's saying to us. And that is just because we have failed does not mean we are no longer useful to God. Pete, but Jesus was calling him out of self-pity. That's what he was, he was doing. He's calling him out of self-pity. Who said I can't use you? Who said that? Did you hear me say that to you? Peter, there's more for you to do. Why are you allowing your shame and why are you allowing your struggle to keep putting a lid? I didn't put, I didn't put that lid there. I didn't do that. Well, they, they well, later for they. And he commissions him. He commissions him. Now, um, I got to say here, he doesn't just commission him to usefulness. Notice the nature of what he can. He commissions him to be a leader, to shepherd. In fact, as you know the rest of the story of Peter, um, um, Peter would be the human instrument by and through whom the Holy Spirit would use to inaugurate the church. Yeah. Yeah, the one that denied Jesus. See, here's the point. Now, I want you to understand this. Um, I'm not talking about some premature restoration. I don't want anybody coming out, walking out. I, I've seen situations where people have been prematurely restored. There's several ingredients involved. I mean, first there's the sin, and then there are the causes for the sin that need to be rooted out. And so you do people a disservice when they stand up and say, will you forgive me? I forgive me. Okay, next day, here's some ministry opportunity. Oh, wait a minute. And it's not that you're trying to punish them. They, they're, they're, they need to work through the issues that cause the problem. That's what biblical restoration is all about. So I'm not suggesting that at all. It is for their benefit and our benefit to make sure that there's strength in that area of weakness and, and so that when they're giving a platform there, uh, uh, there's strength there. And that's what, that's what Galatians 6.1 is all about, isn't it? The, the text says, 
If you see someone overtaken in any fault or any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering, considering yourself. Now, the word restore there is a very interesting Greek word. It is a word, is a verb that was used of mending nets. Mending nets. It's a word that was used of putting joints back in place. It was a word that was used of, 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 uh, of setting bones. With the exception of mending nets, those other two are very, very painful. There's a process involved. Yeah. But listen, I would argue this. Why do you mend a net? Why do you put a, a joint back in place? Why do you reset a bone? You do it so that you can use it again. So the restoration that Paul is talking about and the restoration that Jesus gives to Peter, they're consistent. They're for usefulness. They're for blessing. So who said God can't use you? But we restore people. And again, the restoration is not cheap. No, you go through a process. This young leader I was talking about, that anger and pride got to him, he's been through a process. And there's a number of us who have vouched for him. He did more than what was asked to do. So why should we punish him? see, God's grace and mercy eclipses our failures. And one of the reasons why the Lord lets us fall is to teach us that weakness is an advantage. Because when you're weak, you're dependent. When you're strong, paradoxically, you're most vulnerable. So, Jesus commissions, recommissions Peter. So, there's a charcoal fire. There's a conversation with Jesus. And then finally, there's the calling renewed. So, what does Jesus do after this? Okay, yeah, all right, if I ask you three times... Got it. I just want, I did that for you because I wanted you to get it. I wanted you to get it. I wanted you to get it. That it's your love for me means everything. Then Jesus says, look, I want to, I want to recommission you. Verse, uh, verse 18 um, and 19 has caused a little bit of problem, but I, I don't see the problem in this altogether. Uh, verse 18 says, Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you wherever you do not want to go. Now, verse 19, the first part says, this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, take the expression glorify God. That is very important to understand here. What Jesus is talking about here, most scholars believe, and I agree with this, most scholars believe that he is speaking of Peter's crucifixion. And history tells us that Peter was crucified. 
Now, the reason why you need to go back to the expression glorify God here is that Peter's death is not to be taken as a consequence of his denial. No, just the opposite. Peter's death, the way he would die, is, is the privilege of identification with his Savior. It is just the opposite. No, you denied me, but you're going to live in such a way that you're going to be singularly focused and devoted to me, so much so that I'm going to give you the privilege to die the way I died. It's not a consequence. It's a privilege. In fact, I think there's an interesting applicational implication here, and that is that serving God is not an entitlement. It's not an entitlement. It is a privilege. I always, always twinge when I hear people selling themselves too much in the church. Over, overemphasizing what they bring to the vitality of a ministry. This is not a place for us to shop our talents. This is not a place to showcase our abilities. It is a place to graciously and gratefully serve because of the privilege of having been forgiven. And that's where it all starts. So I think in a preliminary way, Jesus said to Peter, okay, okay, Peter, here it is, buddy, right here, right here, right here, right here, right here, man. You're going to be radically committed to me. Now I'm going to use you to help found this thing called a church. And you're going to have suffering in your life, but it's not punitive. It's going to be a blessing, buddy. And then he wraps this up by saying these two words. This conversation just, he lands the plane. Follow me. That's what this charcoal fire was all about, buddy. That's what this conversation has been about. Peter, draw a curtain over the denial. It's over. It's over, buddy. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's over. It's over. They better not talk about it. And I don't want you handicapping your impact for me by you constantly rehearsing it. Yeah, I want you to remember the pain that it caused. That's redemptive. But the guilt and shame I've carried away. So, Peter, look me in the eye. Follow me. By the way, in the Greek text, the word, the verb follow there is a present active indicative verb. Uh, what, is, what is that all about? Well, it means, it means that, that, that it's not a guarantee. It means, it means that, that it, it could have been translated, keep on following me. Keep on following me. It implies that you can be distracted. It implies that you can take your eyes off of me. It implies that I can't help but think maybe Jesus had in mind or maybe Peter had in mind when he mentioned that. You know, Peter had little issues with distraction. I don't want to get too much on his case because, you know, the rest of them suckers stayed in the boat, and then they want to bust Peter for walking a few steps and, and sinking. Well, you ain't walked no steps. So um, I'm just saying, 
So Peter gets out on the boat, and he's in a stormy sea, and he looks at Jesus, and as long as he's looking at Jesus, he's stable, man. He's walking. He's confident. And then he said, it's the storm out here. <laughs> and the other thing is this, uh, you know, this is not a good way to end a message, but I do have to kind of like allude to this. <laughs> the very next verses, we're talking, this is verse 19. They didn't have verses back then, but this is verse 19. Verses 20 through 22, you know what happens? Oh, hold your mama. You know what happens? You know what happens? Jesus just went to his charcoal fire, his conversation with him, put him back together, follow me, and it's okay, everything's fine, and you know, you don't need to be distracted by them, and this is kind of stuff. You know what happened? You know what Peter says? After all of this, he looks over and sees John. He says, uh, what about him? Now, I ain't Jesus. If that had been one of my sons, you little. <laughs> well, what, what, what have I got to say? So, I don't know if Jesus shook his head or he's omniscient, but I would, oh, we can't get there from here. Um, Jesus just said to Peter, hey, come on, man. Come on. Seriously. Listen, here's the deal, Peter. I'm going to say this again. My business with John ain't your business. You have absolutely, categorically nothing to do with what I do in and through John. Your business is to be concerned with all of my business for you. I wish Christians would get that. Your business is to be concerned with all of my business for you. Listen, the way to impact, it really is not that heavy. It really is not. The way to effectiveness, it's not that deep. Just keep following Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Have you put a lid on your life because of past failure? Are you still beating yourself up because of Bad decisions, choices. God has forgiven you. Why don't you embrace his forgiveness? Listen, this sounds cruel what I'm going to say here. At a certain point, shame is idolatry. 
more specifically, shame is really an expression of pride. Because we're more concerned about who I've disappointed, what I think about myself, and what other people think about me than what God says he wants to do in me and through me and for me. That's where it's a pride piece. And we sanitize it by saying little nice, poor theology statements like, well, I just can't forgive myself. Well, think about that statement. Number one, you're absolutely right. We all, well, none of us can forgive ourselves because we're not deity. We can't forgive ourselves. What we're really saying is that we won't receive and accept God's forgiveness. That's what we're saying. But if we won't receive and accept God's forgiveness, what we're saying is, is that somehow or another, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is inadequate for my sin. That ain't true. It's not true. Will you accept his forgiveness? Will you embrace it? There'll be Stephen ministers and some of the elders perhaps who are in this service and staff members in this service will be up front. If there's something that you're wrestling with, why don't you come and let us pray with you. Just after the first service, a guy said to me, Crawford, for years, years I've been struggling with this. God spoke to me today. I can tell you, this is a more common problem than I, I run into this an awful lot. God wants you to be free so he can use you for maximum fruit. The kingdom suffers when we're carrying shame. Carrying shame. Your family suffers. Joy is conditional. He wants to set us free. Come to the charcoal fire. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you. Thank you for leaving this in the sacred text. Thank you, O oh God, that you do not deal with us according to our sin. Bless your name. But according to your abundant mercy, Lord, you delight in showing mercy to us. Thank you for your grace. Dismiss us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.